Good morning. Welcome to our 10 o'clock worship sermon. I'm Pastor Stephen, the teaching pastor of Calvary Baptist Church here in Phillipsburg, Kansas. Uh, We are located in the north central part of Kansas, about 30 minutes south of the Nebraska-Kansas line. Uh, During the 10 o'clock service, we are teaching through the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, and we are in chapter 8, the chapter that deals with Christ the Mediator. And we are teaching from section 3 this morning. So chapter 8, section 3 of Christ the Mediator. And our focus this morning will be on the human nature of Christ. Uh, So here's section 3. The confession says, The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, united in this way to the divine in the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. He had in himself all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The Father was pleased to make all fullness dwell in him, so that, being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he was thoroughly qualified to carry out the office of mediator and guarantor. He did not take this office upon himself, but was called to it by his Father, who put all power and judgment in his hand and commanded him to carry them out. Uh, I mentioned earlier that we will examine the human nature of Christ this morning. And to properly examine the human nature, we need to begin with the Incarnation. And so that's where we're going to begin with this morning. We're going to begin with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We're going to discuss the virgin birth. Uh, We're going to talk about the nature of his human nature. What kind of human nature did Jesus have? Uh, We're going to examine the several human milestones that he experienced, such as his temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, and will also address the temptations uh, in the wilderness that he faced from Satan. And so those are the things we're going to discuss this morning. To properly examine the human nature of Christ, we're going to talk about the incarnation, we're going to talk about what kind of human nature Christ possessed, we're going to talk about several different milestones in his life. We're going to talk about the baptism. We're going to talk about being tempted by Satan. And then we're, going to be ta- then we're going to talk about the suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. So let's begin with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 36, uh, the angel Gabriel visits Mary and he says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Verse 
And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. According to God's will and his plan of redemption, uh, it was always his purpose for the Son to become incarnate. It was always God's purpose. Uh, In eternity past, when God uh, laid out the plans of redemption, he always purposed that his Son at one point in the future, would take on human flesh. And since the Son is eternal, the Son is omniscient, He is full of knowledge and all wisdom, He always knew that He would one day take upon human flesh. So the Son's incarnation It wasn't a surprise, and it wasn't spontaneous. The divine son always knew that he would one day take on human flesh. That he would dwell among men. That he would suffer, be executed, buried, and raised from the dead. He always knew that. The incarnation of the Son is one of the most fundamental truths of the Christian faith. In fact, Scripture says that the incarnation is such an important element of our confession that denial of it or a rejection of it proves you're not a Christian. Anyone who rejects the incarnation, if you reject the virgin birth, if you reject the, uh, the Son of God taken upon human flesh, living in the world, if you reject that, the scripture says you're not a Christian. Where, where does it say that in scripture? Here's two verses for you. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. According to Paul, in the early church, a part of their confession, what you would have to confess in order to be welcomed inside the church, you would have to confess that Jesus Christ became flesh. You'd have to confess that. You'd have to believe that. Here's another verse. 2 John chapter 1, verse 7. The apostle says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and an antichrist. According to John, if you reject the virgin birth, the incarnation of Christ, you're a deceiver. 
You're an antichrist. You're, you're against the faith. You're an enemy of the church. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, the, the, the moment that the Son of God took on human flesh and, and lived with men, carries such an enormous significance. And because it's so significant, the church shouldn't just celebrate or meditate on the coming of Christ, the first advent, only during Christmas season. And that's, that's a big mistake. That's a big mistake we make. It's fundamental to our faith. It's part of our confession. Therefore, it should be part of our worship. It should be a part of our heart. It should be on our mind. We should always think about the moment the Son of God took on human flesh. It is a, a work of God. It is a work of God that actually, like, it, it kind of kickstarts, you know? It kickstarts our salvation. It gets the ball rolling, if you will. The incarnation is, is a, an important part of God's redemptive plan. If the Son of God doesn't take on human flesh, he, he can't be a sacrifice. He can't suffer. Uh, he can't sympathize with our weakness. Uh, God's son has to take on human flesh in order to be qualified as the mediator between God and man. A divine a divine being, only divine, can't bleed. But when when the son of God took on human flesh, he is now able to bleed and suffer and his blood because it was shed, that righteous blood, it forgives us of our sins. And so, like I said, the, the incarnation kind of kickstarts God's plan of redemption. It, it gets the ball moving in the right direction. All three persons of the divine trinity were active in the incarnation. Um, in fact, uh, only God is at work in the incarnation. Since the incarnation is a part of our salvation and salvation is a work of God alone, humans don't contribute to the incarnation. I mean, we read from Luke chapter 1. Mary asked the angel, how am I going to get pregnant? I, I've, I'm a virgin. Meaning she is not actively involved in anything. There is no, uh, there is no sexual encounter. There's no relationship with a man. The incarnation, just like every other part of the, of the work of salvation, it is a work of God alone. Human merit is not involved. So what exactly does the Father, Son, and Spirit do? If it's a work of God alone, what does God do in the incarnation? And the answer is found in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 5, the scripture says, Consequently, 
When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. That passage right there, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, that passage perfectly describes the divine trinity's uh, responsibility in the incarnation. According to scripture, it was the father's will. The son was uh, obedient to that will. Uh, The son uh, was submissive. The son was one with the father. It was his will as well. And the Holy Spirit prepared the body. It was the Father's will to send the Son. It was the will of the Son to be sent. And it was the power of the Holy Spirit to create, prepare, and to form the human nature of the Son. That's right. The human nature of Jesus Christ was created. The divine person was not. The Son of God is an uncreated Person, He is of the same substance and of the same essence as the Father and Spirit. He is eternal. But that human nature, that human body that he took on, those are created. And it's the Holy Spirit who prepared and formed the physical and spiritual life of the human nature. Notice that the passage in Hebrew claims that uh, this incarnation of the Son was predicted in the scroll of the book. Where? It's in Psalm chapter 40, verse 6. It was prophesied that God would send a person to offer up himself as a perfect sacrifice in order to forgive men of their sins. And the author of Hebrews claims that the person that the father would send was his own son. And so in order for the son of God to come to earth to be a sacrifice for sins, a body was prepared for him. How did the incarnation take place? The Holy Spirit uses the virgin womb of Mary as the place where the creation of Jesus' body would take place. Matthew chapter 1, verse 35, the angel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit is responsible for the physical and spiritual formation of Jesus' human nature. What do I mean by he is responsible for the spiritual formation, right? It's easy to understand the physical formation. The scripture is very clear. It's easy to understand. It's not hard. The body that was to be uh, possessed by the Son of God was actually created in the womb. But what about the spiritual formation? 
The scripture says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Luke chapter 2 verse 52. The scripture says Jesus had the Holy Spirit without measure. The Holy Spirit was given to the Son so that Jesus could have all the powers and all the gifts that are necessary to successfully perform the office of a mediator here on earth. All that, all that Jesus would need as a human to successfully be the mediator was given to him by the Holy Spirit. Jesus had the Spirit without measure. Everything a man could know, Jesus knew. Whatever a man could know, Jesus possessed that knowledge. Well, how come he didn't know the time of his return? Remember when the disciples asked Jesus when would be the time of his return? And Jesus said only the Father knew? Because the human nature of Christ didn't know. And he could only know what was possible for humans to know. And since it wasn't possible for humans to know when the return of Christ would be, the person, the human nature of Christ, didn't know. And, and guys, we have to understand that. As a human, Jesus only knew what was possible for a human to know. He had the spirit without measure. For instance, me, because of sin, I'm limited in what I know. I don't have the spirit beyond measure. But because Jesus is the God-man, and he has the spirit beyond measure, whatever it is possible for a man to know, Jesus knows. Here's something else. The human nature of Christ only knew what was possible for a person to know at that specific time of their life. For instance, an infant. An infant would not know what the capital of Israel was, right? If you went up to a million infants, a million one-year-olds, and you asked them, hey, what's the capital of Israel? None of them would know. And the Son of God in the human nature, was the same way. He only knew what was possible to be known as a human at that specific time of their life. So as an infant, he wouldn't have known what the capital of Israel is. Innately, a human wouldn't know that, uh, an infant wouldn't know that answer. And so as an infant, he had to learn facts that a normal infant wouldn't know. And that's why the scripture says he grew in wisdom. That's what it means. Jesus had to be given the wisdom and the knowledge of what it's possible for men to know. And he could only know 
what was possible for a person to know at that specific time of their life. What was the main purpose of the incarnation? The main purpose was to serve as a sign. It was to serve as a sign. It was a sign that revealed men needed a savior. The birth of Jesus Christ was the universal sign that men, normal men, all men, were born sinners and they can't save themselves. And so they needed a mediator, someone to settle the dispute between God and man. And Jesus' incarnation is a sign that Jesus is that person to do it. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel. There are many births in the Bible. There are many extraordinary births in the Bible. Many women who were previously barren had children. Women who were past the age of childbearing conceived. Many extraordinary births. But Mary's pregnancy, the birth of Jesus, was completely unique. The birth of Christ was unlike any other verse. Even, even the extraordinary birth, like Sarah. She was past the age of childbearing, so when she had Isaac, it was a miracle. Jesus' birth surpasses that one. Why? Because his birth didn't involve a human father. So Jesus' birth... His incarnation was a sign. It was an extraordinary, miraculous, surpassing every other birth. And it was a sign of salvation. Its purpose is to save sinners. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. The entire mission of the incarnation... The entire mission of the first advent is to save sinners. If men had never sinned, there would be no reason for the incarnation. So the incarnation is necessary in order to reconcile men to God, to bridge the gap of estrangement, to bring peace about, to forgive sins, to be a perfect sacrifice. The son had to be born of a virgin. Typically, when we think of the incarnation, we only think about the virgin birth. Right? Oh, yeah, the incarnation. Yeah, that, you're talking about the time where Mary became pregnant with the son of God. And where the son of God became a man. But there's more. For instance, the incarnation of Jesus Christ explains how the human nature of Christ is without sin. 
you can't properly explain the sinlessness of Christ apart from the virgin birth. When the angel announced to Mary that she would conceive by the Holy Spirit, the angel called the child the Holy One of God, the Son of God. Critics of Christianity try to explain that uh, the phrase Holy One of God simply means someone who is special. But that's not the way Scripture describes the holiness of Christ. The Scripture clearly expresses that Christ would be the very Son of God. He would be nothing short of moral perfection. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says Jesus knew no sin. 1 Peter 1.19 says that Jesus is the Lamb of God without spot or blemish. Isaiah 53, the prophet prophesies that the Messiah would commit no sin. The Old Testament priests, they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. Jesus didn't offer a sacrifice for himself. Why not? Because he was sinless. Christ's perfect righteousness is the catalyst for our spiritual cleansing. If Christ is not perfect, he's not sinless, then we're not cleansed of our sins. He his, his sacrifice is not sufficient. The Bible overwhelmingly teaches the sinlessness of Jesus. And it's perfectly revealed in the incarnation, the way that Jesus was born. This is... 101 in theology. The virgin birth of Christ points to the sinlessness of Christ. And without that sinlessness, there is no expiation of sins. If there's no expiation of sins, then how are we to stand before God? And if Christ isn't perfectly righteous, who is? If the Son of God cannot atone for sins, who could? <laughs> Who's greater than He? Who could be more righteous than God's Son? Listen to what R.C. Sproul says about the sinlessness of Christ. There's a significant difference between the good, the better, the best, and the perfect. It amazes me that many people will say that Jesus is a good man, but not that he is the perfect man. But how can Jesus be a good man if he has falsely claimed to be a perfect man? Only a bad man would claim to be perfect if he was not perfect. To be equal with the Father, to be sent from God, to be the Savior of the world, a good man would not claim such things of himself if they were not true. Jesus can't merely be a good man. He is either the perfect man or he's not a good man at all. You get that? Jesus was born a sinless, a sinless person. 
His human nature was spotless. It was sinless because of the virgin birth. God was his father. Jesus is not under the headship of Adam, meaning he's not a part of fallen humanity. God is his head. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.3, the head of Christ is God. Adam's the head of all humanity except for Christ's humanity. And why isn't Adam the head of Christ? Because Christ is the only human who isn't born of natural generation. All other humans are born of natural generation. They are born of descendants from Adam. Husband and wife or man and woman. Natural generation, except for Christ. His father is not a human. His father is God. He is not under the headship of Christ. Jesus' generation is supernatural. It's not natural. What was Jesus like as a baby? Like all other babies, except without sin. He had weaknesses, he had needs, he had desires. He had to be fed, changed, cared for, protected, loved. He had to be educated. Jesus possessed all that it was necessary to be truly human. And as a human, Christ was dependent upon God, just like all other humans are. But this is the difference between the humanity of Christ and Adam's humanity. Adam desired to live independently from God. Jesus never did. Not once did the man Christ Jesus ever want to live outside of the will of God. Not once. Not even when he was tempted by Satan. Not even in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not once did Jesus ever want to live independently from God but Adam did, and that's the main difference. That, that started Adam's fall. The scripture says that after Jesus' baptism, he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Both Adam and Jesus were tempted by Satan. Jesus' temptations were much greater, though. In what way? Well, when Adam was tempted, uh, it took place in paradise. The scene was better. Paradise. It's called paradise for a reason. Jesus was led into the wilderness. A bunch of beasts were there. It wasn't paradise. Much more difficult place to experience temptation. Jesus was alone in the wilderness. Adam had Eve as his companion. When Adam was tempted by Satan with food, it wasn't after he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. His body wasn't exposed and his body wasn't vulnerable when he was offered the fruit of the tree. But Jesus, when Satan offered him bread, it was after he fasted. The body, the physical body was 
was impoverished. It was, it was weakened. It was vulnerable to hunger. But Christ still remained faithful. Jesus' temptations were much more difficult. But although the deck was stacked against him, he did what Adam could not do. He remained righteous. He remained sinless. He remained faithful to God. That divine nature of Christ didn't keep him from facing temptation. Christ's divine nature didn't keep him from being hungry, stressed out, experiencing anxiety, sadness, suffering. As a human, Jesus experienced all of the troubles and all of the woes that every human faces. He was tempted in every way we are, except he did not sin. The sinlessness of Christ really isn't a debate. If you believe the Bible, it's not a debate. We all know every Christian believes that Jesus is sinless. That isn't the debate. The debate is, could have Christ sinned? To put it this way, when Christ was on earth, was he peccable or was he impeccable? Could Jesus have sinned? Or could he not have sinned? I personally believe Christ was impeccable. That he could not sin. I believe it was impossible for Christ to sin. There wasn't any scenario that could be created. Or that could have been created. For him to sin. Why? Because he is the God man. The divine and human natures of Christ dwelt perfectly. It was a perfect union. If Christ could have sinned, then that creates a problem between the two natures. In order for the human and the divine natures of Christ to dwell perfectly together, the human will must never be reluctant to the divine. When Jesus took upon a human nature, he also took upon a human will, a human mind, a human soul. If at any point the human will was reluctant or even hesitated in the slightest to do the divine will, voila, Jesus is a sinner. Even the desire, the hesitation See, we don't, we don't think in terms like that when we talk about sin. We don't think about the desire. We think about the action. Oh, well, I sinned when I actually committed the crime. No, 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 no. No, 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 Scripture teaches that the sin is committed at the desire, at the will. The moment that we hesitate, the moment that we are reluctant to obey the Lord, not that we really do disobey Him, but when we desire not to, at the desire is the inward that leads to the outward disobedience. Any hesitation in the slightest to obey God is sin. And that's the perfection of this 
hypostatic union. The hypostatic union describes the, the union of the divine and human nature, the complete, perfect union of those two natures. Jesus didn't lack anything that was intrinsic to humanity or deity. Those human nature, the human nature and the divine nature was never at odds. Never at odds. The human nature of Christ was never reluctant to submit to the divine will. And we see this perfect union in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right before his betrayal and arrest, Jesus enters into the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays. The Father communicates to the Son the, the dreadful suffering that he's about to experience on the cross. And the scripture says his body and soul were suffering. Jesus was suffering so much when he learned of what's waiting for him that the scripture says he sweat drops of blood. But Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was not avoiding the cross. He was bringing his human nature in subjection to the divine will of God. It was God's divine will to punish and to crush his son. And Christ's human nature said, let that be done. Perfect union of, of the human and divine nature. Never once were they ever at odds. And that's why I believe Christ was impeccable. He could have never sinned because of that perfect union. If you believe that Christ could have sinned, then you got problems in that union. That presents problems. Those two natures don't perfectly unite in the person of Jesus Christ. There's, there's some kind of disunion. There's some estrangement. And may that never be. The hypostatic union, the, the perfect union of the human and divine nature of Christ qualifies him to be the perfect mediator. He could not sin. And that doesn't take anything away from what he suffered. And many people think so. They, they say, geez, man, if the Son of God couldn't have sinned, then he had nothing to lose, right? He had nothing to fear. Jesus' inability to sin doesn't detract from his obedience. He still experienced suffering. He still experienced all the woes and the troubles that humans experience. Those temptations were real. His impeccability don't invalidate his sufferings. What about Jesus' baptism? As a, as a man, uh, Jesus uh, was baptized in the Jordan River. Is there a connection between Jesus' baptism and his human nature? And there is a connection. Jesus was baptized not because he was a sinner. Jesus was baptized not because he needed to be cleansed. Jesus was baptized to demonstrate that he was consecrated by God to offer a service, a special service. 
Jesus' baptism proved that he was God's beloved son. And he was in service to his father. At his baptism, the father declared from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that baptism began his ministry, began his ministry of the mediator. And that baptism leads to another baptism. The first baptism anticipates a second baptism. In the Gospels, Jesus alluded to his death on the cross when he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. At his original baptism, Jesus volunteers for this service. He presents himself to the Father. He's baptized in the Jordan to be consecrated for this particular task. What's the particular task? To be God's mediator. To be man's mediator. And that first baptism, if you can, you can draw a straight line all the way, and that line will end at his second baptism, which is the death on the cross. That's Jesus' second baptism. At his first baptism, Jesus was immersed in water. At his second baptism, he's immersed underneath the sins of humanity. And there's more similarities between Jesus' first baptism and his second baptism, which is the death on the cross. At his first baptisms, the heavens were torn. They were peeled back. The dove came from heaven. While on the cross, the temple curtain was torn. At his first baptism, he was baptized by John the, the Baptist, who was called Elijah the prophet. Right when Jesus was baptized, John announced that he is Elijah the prophet. When Jesus was hanging on a cross, the crowd thought he was calling out for Elijah the prophet. A phenomenon, a, a supernatural phenomenon occurred at his baptism and crucifixion. The spirit descends upon him like a dove. That was supernatural. And on the cross, what happened during midday? The land was darkened. The sun stopped shining. In the middle of the afternoon, complete darkness. Jesus is also called the Son of God at his first and second baptisms, the second baptism being his crucifixion. Here's something else to consider, and I want to close our study of Jesus' human nature with this consideration. I want you to consider that when Jesus took upon human flesh, it symbolized his participation his participation with us. The Bible says that when the Son of God became man, he became like us in every respect except for sin. At his incarnation, Jesus participates with man. And at his baptism, we participate with him. We're united to him. 
in, in the human flesh, Christ becomes united to us. And at his second baptism, uh, the death on the cross, we become united to him. And that's what our baptism symbolizes. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, that we are buried with Christ in baptism, being united with him in his death and burial, and raised to newness of life. Through the incarnation, through the human nature, Jesus sympathizes and participates with us, but through his baptism, we participate with him. Impossible if he doesn't become a man. Impossible if the Son of God does not take upon the human nature. And that's why the human nature is significant. He sympathizes with us. He participates with us as God's representative. And we participate with him. We are joined with him. We are united to him in his baptism. And he perfectly represents us. 